Amen. You may be seated. There's a little bit of echo and feedback in these monitors. I hear my own voice, so there we go. Is that better? Um, so, starting off in Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, the scripture reads as such. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So here we see a pivotal, pivotal moment in this man's life. This Ethiopian eunuch who had come all this way to worship um, Yahweh in Jerusalem, who did not have the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was some type of proselyte to the Jewish religion or what have, had come of it to that point during the uh, days of the apostles, on his way back from Jerusalem to his home country of Ethiopia, every event of his life leading to this point of God's sovereign will to bring the gospel to him, to enlighten his eyes, and we see his response. And we see the response of coming to faith here in Jesus Christ, in the good news, is that he's baptized. Last week, we took a very in-depth look at communion, and that, along with baptism, are the hallmarks of the uh, sacraments or the physical uh, rituals that are identified with the Christian religion. Everybody knows something of baptism, whether it's true or not. Everyone knows something of the Lord's table. And it's so closely identified to the DNA of what it means to be a believer and how to practice the, the religion of Christianity that it's worth while to take the time and see what scripture has to say about it. After all, we are Trinity Baptist Church for a reason. So before we get into the ins and outs of this eunuch's response to the gospel in his baptism, let's answer a few questions. Like, what is baptism? What is this thing that he does? It says that he was baptized, but what does the rest of Scripture say about baptism? What is it? Starting off, uh, a lot of people call it an ordinance. It's an ordinance of the church. That's a big religious word, isn't it? All it means is that it was ordained or commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ in expectation that his church would, for some reason, whatever this act is, would continue to do it. It was ordained and instituted by Christ himself. 
You see, Jesus was baptized with John's baptism, not as a display of repentance, but as a display to the church, an example, because it was proper to fulfill all righteousness, as Matthew 3.15 says. Um, This means that it was an act of righteousness, baptism is, uh, that believers are expected to do in Christ's footsteps. Christ's death was not just to become our sin, but it was also so that we would become his righteousness and follow and walk in the steps of what Christ had set as the standard of righteousness. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And part of that meeting the standard of righteousness in Christ's eyes was baptism itself. And we see this expectation for the church to practice baptism not only by example, but in the Lord's command, in the Great Commission, when he ascended into the heavens before he told uh, his disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So it was a command, an ordinance, something that for whatever reason, the Christian church is identified with baptism so intimately because Christ, for whatever reason, thought it was important for us to continue to walk in. And not only is it an ordinance, Uh, The church historically has seen it as a sacrament, um, meaning that not only is it a command just for commandment's sake, just um, just to observe something with no meaning, but it indeed imparts a grace, but a sanctifying grace for us, and not a justifying, but we'll get into that here in a moment. But how is it done? So, so if that's what baptism is, if it is something that was so precious to Jesus that he said, as long as you guys keep gathering in my name, keep baptizing people, make disciples, baptize people alongside the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. So how is this done? If that's what it is, how is it done? Well, if we look at our text in uh, verse 35, it says, When Philip, then Philip, opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This eunuch, this person who had dedicated his life to religion after being a convert, a Gentile convert from a different nation, traveling to go learn about Yahweh, to worship, still dead in his sins, still dead in his trespasses, did not know the gospel, but God had orchestrated in his heart through whatever events that uh, predate what's going on in this passage, he had an inclination for the God of the Old Testament, and Philip was sovereignly placed on his path, on his way back, to tell him the good news of Jesus Christ. He was opening up the scroll of Isaiah, we know in the context, and he was saying, you know, I don't understand this. How can I understand uh, this text in the Old Testament unless someone explains it to me? And in the explanation of Scripture, Philip opened his mouth 
And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus, that he was the lamb who was slaughtered on our behalf. The gospel, the bad news is that we're sinners and we deserve punishment and wrath from God. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the good news that Philip sovereignly and providentially was placed in this eunuch's life to know. And you can almost imagine as he's sitting in his chariot with Philip next to him, this complete stranger, this complete stranger from a completely different race. He's probably completely unfamiliar before this trip to Jerusalem, what it meant to be different than his skin color. He was from Africa. He was Ethiopian. And this completely different man, this completely different religion, tied together all the missing pieces to what it meant to be a follower of God. That the good news is that Christ was the lamb who was slaughtered on your behalf. And we see that before he's baptized, he comes to faith in the gospel. That baptism is for those who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not so after the good news was preached and believed in his heart that the eunuch was baptized. Now I say this, a lot of us growing up in the Baptist tradition, right, will already know this. This is uh, just kind of revisiting baptism for a lot of us, but hang in there uh, uh, with us if you already know this, because there's a lot of us who are very new to the faith or, or, or new to the denomination or, or different types, and, and there's different views on baptism. So, so let's just take the, the opportunity just to have a refresher real quick of, of how we believe in baptism and where we stand as a church. You see, there's basically two um, modes of baptism that, that, people, um, that people have believed in church history throughout the ages. There are credo-baptists and there are pedo-baptists. Um, credo is from the Latin for belief and then pedo from the Latin for child. So that might explain a little bit uh, why we dunk people who are believers while other churches, other denominations might sprinkle babies, right, or, or halfway submerse babies. Um, it's because there's a distinction between the Baptist church and other historically reformed churches, and it's where we actually get our name Baptist, because over the years, it just became a shortened um, um, derivative of the term credo-baptists, and today we're Baptists. We believe this, not just because of this isolated text alone, because the eunuch had heard the gospel and then was baptized, but because in all of Scripture, we see baptism every time as a response to faith. Not as a ritual for children, but as a response to somebody's inward faith, and it's an outward expression and never once is there any example of a child, um, a, a young infant, being baptized in all of Scripture. So why is pedo-baptism believed? Well, why uh, do a lot of church, uh, church denominations, even good ones, even good Reformed ones who believe in Scripture, uh, disagree with us? 
While it's easy to chalk it up just to a Catholic hangover for our Presbyterian or Lutheran's friends, right? Because they were closer in historical proximity to the Catholic Church. Uh, that's just an easy cop-out answer, but they are our uh, trailblazers and forefathers in the Reformed faith, and they take Scripture seriously. So there is theological and biblical precedent to their belief if we are willing to uh, listen. It's believed that many, by many uh, that baptism is the new covenant's parallel to the sign of the old covenant in circumcision. And since circumcision was applied uh, preemptively before faith as a sign of a covenant, baptism would similarly parallel uh, God's covenant of grace in the New Testament to the visible church today, just as Passover's parallel is the Lord's Supper today. So you can see the, the draw where, where people would say, well, since this was to dedicate our children to the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, this is now to dedicate our children in the New Testament. And I actually believe in part, I, I agree, but just because uh, they are similar, they are in the covenant that's made, does not believe that they are identical in form. We know this because a differentiation in sign necessitates that it's performed differently, right? One is a physical surgery and the other one's just getting wet, right? Um, so they have to be performed differently. And if it were the case that it had to be performed in like manner to circumcision, then only our baby boys would be baptized, and not our baby girls as well. But we see men and women throughout the New Testament being baptized after they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because it is an expression of an inward dedication, commitment, and testimony of their salvation. This, along with the rest of Scripture and the earliest uh, of church history, excluding baptism before the baptized comes to faith, makes, in our opinion, as a Baptist church, paedo-baptism implausible. And further proof, you could take Colossians 2.12, which says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Amen. And not only is it for those who come to faith in Christ, but how else we baptize people? We do it by immersion, okay? We, we submerge people completely into water. And the reason for that, we can see an uh, example here in verse 38 of our text. So after the eunuch comes to the saving faith in Christ, after all he believed in the Old Testament was brought to light in the gospel and Christ was revealed as the Savior that he was looking forward to in the Old Testament, his response after coming faith in the gospel is to be baptized. It says in verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Another Baptist distinction um, of, about baptism is more clearly evident um, than the first uh, because it is uh, quite more obvious in Scripture. Um, the Greek word here 
as it is with every time you see the word baptized or baptized in the New Testament, is baptizo, which literally means to fully immerse. That's what the word means. Um, And we see that the evident mode of baptism is to, to submerge someone fully into water because one, that's just literally what the word means. And it's, there's a clear implication in Scripture that baptism needs a large body of water, such as the Jordan River, other places where they gathered to baptize, needing to be a lot of water, when I'd suppose sprinkling wouldn't take more than a cup or two, right? And John 3.23 puts it like this. Now, John also was baptizing in the Aenon near Salem, uh, Salem because there was much water there. So why did he pick that place? Because there was much water there. It's my guess they would not need much water to sprinkle, but to baptizo or to fully immerse, as the word means in Greek, Much water is necessary. And then lastly, how do we baptize people? We baptize people in a Trinitarian fashion, meaning that we baptize them in the um, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Father who calls, it's the Son who saves, and it's the Holy Spirit who draws people and regenerates their hearts. So because of that, the picture of baptism includes being in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the Great Commission says, go there for and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's a little shop talk. That's just a little bit of a refresh on how we do baptism, why we do it in the specific way that we do it, and why we might disagree with other people. But let's get to the heart of the issue. What does baptism do? Not what is it and how do we do it, but why do we baptize people in the church? What is the meaning behind baptism? Well, first and foremost, um, it's an ordinance, and and with a lot of ordinances, there is deep symbolism in what it means to be baptized. Baptism symbolizes conversion. Because it is something you do after you come to faith in Christ, it symbolizes what happens in your heart when you come to faith in Christ. Though baptism is certainly more than just symbolism in nature, it is certainly not less than symbolism. I feel like we throw off uh, what symbolism means a lot. Like, oh, that just means, just get to the point. What does it mean? But our God in his nature, is a divine artist, storyteller, and the master thespian of the universe. As symbolism all throughout scriptures is one of the predominant themes in God's word. Consider the Lord's Supper, symbolically representing the bread and the cup with the body and the blood of our Savior. Consider how Jesus himself His favorite mode of teaching was through storytelling and word pictures, symbolizing deep spiritual realities in what he called parables. Consider each and every intricate detail in Scripture's apocalyptic nature and what it symbolizes about Christ's return and restoring all things to himself. And then lastly, consider that God instituted and created something as beautiful 
powerful and meaningful as marriage itself for the sole alone purpose as being a theatrical drama to the world about Christ and the church. As Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave mother and father and cleave to a wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, and it's profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That God would create marriage for the sole purpose to symbolize the story of Christ being eternally faithful to his bride. And once you consider all of this, symbolism means a great deal to the creator. And us being crafted and molded into his image, it must mean a great deal to us. Not something that we take for granted. Not something that we look as a, a ritualistic act to, to, uh, to do for no purpose other than, than uh, checking it off as something that we know we're supposed to do to earn God's favor, to earn his respect, and it's just what we do as Christians. No, it's in order to be a, a theatrical, dramatic work symbolizing deep spiritual things, and it's at the very heart of who God is in his nature. So what does baptism symbolize? If it's an ordinance showing us something of God's heart and character and salvation, Romans 6 says in verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This thing we call baptism symbolizes what happens to us in our regeneration. It's another big church word. What baptism symbolizes is what happens to the Christian's heart when they believe the gospel. The old things have passed away, and behold, the new has come. We have been buried with Christ in baptism. Our old man is dead. Our old flesh is dead. It is buried in the tomb with Christ as we symbolically bury our bodies, submerging it into the water. We are buried. We are dead. Everything you knew about yourself pre-Christ, every sin, every regret, every, everything that God or man could hold against you is dead and in the grave. And then, just as Christ resurrected and rose from the grave, we in like manner, our hearts spiritually rose from the dead and given new life, that we would walk in newness of life. Baptism does not work the change of the heart, but it dramatizes that change of heart. We, before our belief in Christ, had hard, stony hearts that could not feel spiritual things. We did not have the DNA that could feel divine stimuli flowing through our veins. It would get to our hearts and it would stop. Our sin hardened our hearts. 
God initially wrote the commandments he had on the hearts of men. That's our conscience. But the Bible teaches us that the more we sin, the more we convince ourselves of the lie, that the lie is greater than the truth, that the creation is more worthy of worship than the creator, the more our hearts get hardened and hardened against the truth, and we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And baptism symbolizes what happens to your heart when the gospel breaks through and cracks the stone of your heart, and you're given what Ezekiel 35 says, a heart of flesh. You had a hard heart. You had one that was dead in your sins and trespasses, and God put that to death the moment that you believed in his son and rose again from the dead spiritually, giving you a heart that could feel the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone regenerates you, and the symbolism of baptism was so precious to the heart of Christ because it was a continual reminder of what he did, why he gave the high price of dying so that he had to be laid in the grave, and why it was worth it because as he resurrects, so does our soul when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't count symbolism off. Don't write it off as just something religious we do to, um, to have excuses, to have baptism Sundays and maybe a potluck afterward or to fill time during a service because the sermon uh, wasn't that long or, or because we want an excuse to show our Christianity outwardly, to, to be a, a prideful before men, to show people that, that look at me, I'm baptized now. No, it's look at the sinner I was and look how Christ brought me back from the grave. And that is at the heart of why Christ institutes baptism, because it's symbolic in nature. Now, it's very important to mention here, lest you um, uh, get it twisted and, and not realize exactly what I'm saying, in no way am I saying that baptism itself regenerates your hearts. By regenerate, that's a theological word, that your heart is dead, it needs to be regenerated. It needs to be brought to life. It needs to be changed. You need to become a new creation in Christ, which happens the moment you believe in the gospel. Baptism does not regenerate any hearts, and it does not forgive any sin. No sin is literally washed away while you enter the water. But instead, it shows an outward sign of what happens when you're regenerated and your old self dies. It's important to pause, though, because we don't want to say that it's merely symbolic for symbolism's sake. Baptism does not justify you before God, but it certainly sanctifies you. It's a bold statement, let me, let me be clear. How we are saved in the Bible, how God works our salvation from beginning to end is worded in, in three tenses. And, and it's good that we come to Sunday school. It's good that we read our Bible on our own. And it's good that we are dedicating to learn more and more about Scripture because we need to be, as a church, familiar with these words so we, they need not to be explained like this. But salvation 
comes in justification, sanctification, and glorification. Firstly, meaning there was a time everyone in here who claims to be in Christ, who is saved, who is born again, can look back and whether it's a day, you know the exact hour and minute you gave your life to Christ, or whether you can look back and see the season of your life where you were regenerated, where you were changed, you can look back and say, that's when I was saved, past tense. That's what the Bible means when it says justified, justification through faith right? By grace, through faith, okay? Um, And when that happens, all your sins are forgiven. They're all washed away. There needs to be no more washing away of sins from that moment on. When you're justified, that's a legal term, meaning you're guilty, God is the judge, but someone else came and paid your fine and justified you. That, That cannot change. No one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. But the Bible speaks clearly, um, especially um, when talking about the continued walk that people have once they're saved, that we are continually being saved. We're continually being sanctified, being set apart as holy, being brought to walk more and more into that newness of life, which is called sanctification. It's not a continual cleaning and forgiveness of your sins, but it's God making you holier and holier the more you believe and remember your salvation. And then glorification is the future tense when we looked at the the one day we'll ultimately be saved. We're saved now, and now we're continually being saved in our sanctification or being made holy. One day we'll be completely glorified. Christ will come and return and he will judge all sin and everyone found in him who did not get found in him because they were so good, because they were good enough, but because they believed in a God who was good enough to save them will be made completely perfect. So we can say that we were saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. Justification is looked at being saved from the penalty of sin because we're forgiven, Sanctification is the continuously being saved from the power of sin. And glorification is the promise that one day we will be saved from the presence of sin altogether. So we need to make it clear that baptism does not justify you. That first step, when you come to faith in Christ and and he promises to forgive your sin, to wash them away as snow, there is a separation between you and God. And once you believe that Christ died for your sins in your place, there's a great exchange at the cross. The punishment that Nick deserves, the hell that Nick deserves, Christ says, I'll take it. And he takes my place on the cross. And then all of his righteousness is given to me and I'm justified. And there's no work we can do, including baptism, to make that happen. We're not regenerated or saved or forgiven or justified by our baptism. Why? For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, not even your own baptism. It is the gift from God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Your baptism doesn't save you because then you could boast that you got yourself to heaven by your baptism. 
That's not how it works. How could there be redemption for the thief on the cross if baptism is what gets you to heaven, is what forgives your sins? But no time to be baptized, no time to take the Lord's Supper, no time to even open up his Bible and read a single verse. He believed in Christ and said, remember me when you go to your kingdom. And he said, you'll be with me today in paradise. How does that fit into a theology of forgiveness by baptism? Uh, You cannot receive the Holy Spirit um, and be regenerated by him pre-baptism if um, baptism is what saves you. Because Acts 10.47, the whole reason the Gentiles were allowed to be baptized was because they said, look at their faith. They've already received the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, verse 47. How were we to withhold baptism of someone who already has the Holy Spirit? So we know you're not regenerated by baptism. It's before you're baptized that you have faith. So we deny that baptism has any power to justify anyone or forgive sins. Just like this ring on my finger symbolizes a covenant that I made with my wife Lauren, baptism symbolizes God's faithful covenant he's made with you in your salvation. It does not save, but it shows that you've been saved. I can take off this ring. It doesn't mean I'm any less married than I was when I had it on. It does not marry me to Lauren, but it shows that we're married. But then you could say, well, Nick, how how can you rectify that? How can you justify that with 1 Peter 3, 21 that says, this baptism which now saves you, right? That's what a lot of people say. No, you have to do this. This is part of your earning your way to heaven. You have to be baptism because this baptism, which now saves you. And just as when I made my vows with my wife, I said, with this ring, I do thee wed. But we would have still been married whether we exchanged rings or not, right? The marriage was dependent on the covenant promise between us. But I still said, with this ring I do thee wed. In like manner that God can say, with this baptism I do thee save you. As a sign of the covenant that he has with his people, far more faithful than human marriage, God promises to save us by grace through Faith alone, not of works, not works of communion, not works of baptism, not works of Bible reading, not works of any religious thing you can do. That's God's covenant. Alone from any physical work. But not only does baptism symbolize what happens in our hearts, but it actually sanctifies us. A lot of people are hesitant to call baptism a sacrament because of what we know of the Catholic Church that says that you are forgiven of your sins once you're baptized and then you get started on the track to meeting that standard of righteousness. So people don't like to say sacrament because what sacrament means is that it imparts grace to you. That by doing it, you are imparted grace through it. And that's a false understanding 
I recognize that, but there's a very real way in that grace is given to those who are baptized and those who see a baptism that's a part of forgiving your sins and making you right with God, but has everything to do with saving you from sin now, has everything to do with you growing in holiness and a love for God, which spurs you on to a deeper walk in your faith. Baptism does not justify or forgive us, but it does sanctify us. It's a physical, tactile means that the Lord has graciously given us that we did not deserve that spurs us on to righteousness and a deeper love for him. And this isn't foreign to to the Bible or, or anything else to do with Christianity. We see Passover in itself is a physical, tactile means God commanded the Old Testament church, Israel, to do in order to remember the salvation that they received via the Passover lamb when the angel of death came through the city during the the Exodus story. Monuments, physical monuments are built in the name of the Lord after Joshua leads his people to the promised land as a physical, tactile reminder of God's provision in battle. At the Red Sea, we see an altar built up after they cross so that future generations would have a physical means of remembrance of how God parted the Red Sea and provided a way through, a way of salvation for God's people to remember and stir up their a holy affection in their souls and appreciate all the more God's salvation that he worked in the past. And even scripture, the physical scripture we hold in our hands is a physical, tactile means of God's grace he graciously gives us that continually sanctifies us when we read it. So physical means of our sanctification are something that the Christian life is all too familiar with. And baptism being one of the most important ones as it was ordained and commanded by Christ. This is why it's not merely an ordinance for ordinance sake, but it has sanctifying effect because as you are baptized and then are graciously given the opportunity to watch others baptized throughout the rest of your Christian life, which by the way necessitates community and commitment to a church body to continually observe what Christ had for you, which is to see others be baptized. And as you see others be baptized, you are given a sovereign reminder to your heart that the spiritual reality of the gospel is true because it's true in this person getting baptized just like it was true in your heart when you were saved, which then stirs up a fresh, a familiar affection, a familiar zeal for the Lord who saved you once and brings you back to your first love. It gives life to our souls being baptized and watching baptism. And it spurs us on to righteousness more and more as it outworks the salvation that God brought to us by faith and a salvation already wrought in our hearts by God's sovereign grace in our hearts. We're given a physical depiction of the same gospel that raised our spirits from the dead and therefore our 
spirits are wakened to more liveliness and realization and belief in that gospel again as we are reminded of what Christ did for us, being buried as a sacrifice for our sins and raised in newness of life, justifying us as we believe in the gospel. So, if that's the case, what's our response? How do we respond to something as near and dear to Christ's heart as baptism? Something instituted to help his church grow in faith. Well, we read in verse 37, it says, in light of the gospel, in light of being revealed the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ by the scriptures, it's important to note, starting with the scriptures, he explained it. The eunuch's response is this. The eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Baptism does not forgive a man, but a forgiven man desires to be baptized. Earnestly, expediently, nothing standing in the way. Not to forgive him, but because he's been forgiven. And the Lord who forgave him told him, do this. There's no hesitation or indecisiveness in the eunuch's heart. This Ethiopian was truly a man of conviction. As soon as he believed that the gospel was true, he said, let me be baptized. Nothing stopping me. Why? Because he was fully convinced that the gospel that he was shown in the scriptures was true. So what holds us back as a church today? Why do we put baptism on the back burner so much? We wait certain times of the year to baptize people. The day of Pentecost, 3,000 people gave their lives to the Lord, and they baptized them on the spot. The eunuch, as soon as he believes the good news, says, what's preventing me? We have to, look, there's water there. Stop. He commanded the chariot to stop. We know from the context that he was in charge of all the money of the queen in Ethiopia. This is a man who had a band of people responsible with him, traveling with him, and he said, everyone, stop. I need to get baptized. The Lord has been too gracious to me to put it off any longer. He commanded the chariot to stop, and he said, what prevents me? I think part of the reason he was so ready to be baptized is because he was so convinced of the truth that baptism symbolizes. He truly believed the message that he saw in Scripture. He truly believed that Christ was the lamb who was slaughtered, who did not see justice, that we deserved pain, wrath, punishment. We deserved hell. And God seeking to be the just, meaning he must punish sin, but also the justifier, meaning it's his heart and love to forgive. He sent his son to take our place. And he said, in light of that, enter the waters. 
be raised to walk in newness of life as a testimony to everyone who would see you. And he was fully convinced of that message, and that's why he wanted to get baptized so soon. Is it because we have a lack of faith in the gospel's certainty that it's true? Then we must get certain today. Christ said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father but by him. Is it because it's an embarrassing thing to stand up here and be baptized? I'm going to be honest, it is. A lot of churches, ours included, you get up here with no shoes on and a robe. My feet do not look good. My wife will tell you that. You get up here and all the eyes are on you. You're the center of attention and a lot of people don't like that. Some people like it too much but not in this compromised way where it's something that looks silly and foolish to the world. You're a grown man, grown woman getting up here in a robe, playing in water in front of a bunch of religious people who are just waiting for the time to pass by so they can go get lunch. This doesn't mean anything to these people. Why are you getting up here? Everybody will be staring at you. What if you do it wrong? Is it a fear of man that prevents us from being baptized? Christ said, if you deny him before men, then he'll deny you before his father. That's a serious, hard truth. Not saying that being baptized is what's going to get you accepted uh, by Christ before the father, but the heart that is accepted by Christ before the father is one that wants to accept him before men. It's a small thing to sacrifice, your ego coming up here, doing something that seems religious and silly. Small sacrifice compared to the sacrifice that Christ had on your behalf on the cross. And he says, follow me. There's no category in the Bible of a truly born-again believer who refuses to be baptized. Now, of course, there are people who are genuinely saved and brought up in churches that did not count baptism as a worthwhile thing to emphasize, and, and that's, that's why they need uh, sound teaching, the, the emphasis that Scripture gives, and it's not because they fear man, and it's not because uh, they don't want to get baptized, but it's not been properly emphasized to them. Those people will be the first to step in the baptismal, Right? but it's an embarrassing thing to some people. And those who refuse to get baptized, they have no place in scripture at least. Baptism was so interwoven in the Christian's mind in the New Testament with their own faith, not because it gave them faith or justified them, but because it was the response that Christ commanded of them. Another reason I've heard why people won't get baptized, they say, well, I'm just not spiritually mature enough, man. I feel like a hypocrite. Getting up in front of people, them knowing, you know, my past or maybe even some struggles that I have now, I'm not perfect, and, and I just, just give me a little bit more time and I'll be good enough to get baptized where, where people won't count me as a hypocrite and where people won't give me the funny looks getting up here. They don't feel worthy of baptism. And the newsflash is, you're not worthy. 
No one's worthy of accepting any divine grace, but that's what makes it grace. We are unworthy in and of ourselves, but the whole gospel message is that Christ made us worthy by his righteousness. When we are buried and raised to walk in newness of life, it was because Christ was buried for us. When we walk in the righteous works prepared before the foundation of the earth, it's because Christ walked in them perfectly and gave them to us. The worthy robes of righteousness that Christ deserves is taken off and put around your shoulders and your sin and everything that that entails and deserves is placed on the cross and punished on Jesus on your behalf to make you worthy. And how can you expect to grow in enough godliness to feel worthy of the gospel? How can you expect to be better at following the commands of God to make yourself feel worthy or mature enough of baptism if you're unwilling to follow him in his first commandment of you? If your heart is, I do not follow God close enough, I do not obey him enough, and I'm just not godly enough to get baptized yet, what better way than to start walking in Christ's footsteps than following his first commandment of you today. When you believe, it's not, okay, now become a Bible scholar. After that, we're gonna get you to be a Sunday school teacher. Um, If that's not your take, then you gotta at least serve in so many potlucks and and make sure you don't do this sin as much and, and start doing this act of righteousness more and then we'll build up until you're righteous enough to get baptized. No, he says, come to faith in me, then show people your faith by getting baptized. Because part of your duty to the people here in your church is not only that it's a sanctifying grace to you as it it reminds you of when you were saved, but it's a sanctifying grace to everyone who sees you. As they look and they remember the zeal they had 20, 30 years ago, what Christ did in their lives and during the season they were baptized and how Christ changed their hearts before that and regenerated them unto faith. You have the duty to be fellowshipping with your church and edifying and building them up by following Christ's first and most simple command of you. Follow in his footsteps. And those of you who are baptized, be encouraging. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Most of us are not discipling. Most of us who are discipling do not talk about baptism. But it's our duty and it's our right and privilege bought by the blood of the cross. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Could it be that the very thing that's keeping us from baptism, that we just don't follow God's commands enough, would be solved if we just got baptized and followed the first command he has of us? Baptism is the coming out party of a Christian. Baptism is the unashamed shout to the world that I have decided to follow Jesus and there's no turning back. And what does that do in your heart? 
You feel hesitant now. You feel afraid now. You feel embarrassed now. What did the eunuch do? Verse 39, it says, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Are you not rejoicing in your Christian walk? Are you not walking hand in hand with Jesus as closely as you should be? Follow his first command of you. Rejoice in the remembrance of the grace of God bought by the cross. Not because you were good enough, but because Christ was. And then there's another reason why you might not be on the baptism uh, a train right now. Maybe you just don't believe that gospel yet. Maybe that, that picture of regeneration isn't true of you yet. Maybe you're unsure what the message of Christianity is. What it's symbolizing. Maybe you've sat here and, and you're a Christian and you're recognizing all the lingo. You're like, yeah. Jesus died for my sins. Yeah, all that. Yeah, this, that, that makes sense. He, he took my place on the cross. But maybe that's unfamiliar. Maybe you've heard it, but it's never hit home. That Christ took your place on the cross. That all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages for that sin is death, spiritual death and separation from God. And the wrath of God is coming down on those who sin and do evil. But God so loved the world, he sent his son to take your place. And it's contingent, you having your place taken, you being saved, you being forgiven from the Father for all of your sin, the one contingency is belief. Believe that you can't make God owe you anything. Believe that you cannot be good enough to get to heaven's gates the day you die and say, look at everything I did, God. Here's my ticket with all of my righteous deeds on it. You owe me heaven. That's the world system of works. That's every other religion asides from Christianity. It says, do this, don't do this, you get rewarded in the afterlife. Whether that's uh, Islam, whether that's Judaism, whether that's Buddhism, whether that's whatever other world system, it says, do this and you'll be rewarded. You can make God your debtor. Christ says, no one makes God debtor. You were not good enough. You cannot do, 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 but you were loved enough. And Christ did enough. If we believe in that, we'll be forgiven of our sins. And what more beautiful picture we have of that than to follow in his steps into believer's baptism. Let's pray.